Hi, and welcome to yet another episode of Casted. Our guest today is Felina Hermans from Amsterdam, the author of The Programmer's Brain, What Every Programmer Should Know About Cognition. So today will be maybe slightly more technical than usual because we will talk a lot about programming and software development, but there's also a lot of interesting stuff about learning and teaching and knowing how to know things and basic cognitive science. So I think most people will get a lot out of that. Felina, hi and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. Excellent. So let's go, there are many ways of explaining this, but let's go back in time to little Felina who just learned programming. So how was that for you? How and when did you learn to program? Yeah, so definitely when I was very young, probably about 10 or 11, uh -huh. definitely before I started high school. Um, and at that time there was no internet. I mean, it existed, but not in my house at the time. So I got books from the library that were printed out basic QBasic listings and I manually copied them into the computer. And that's basically how I learned programming. So I didn't take a programming class until I was an 18-year-old in university. Yeah. And that's exactly the same experience for me. I'm actually yes. old enough that there was no internet. It was not, it was not my parents' fault. There was yes. no internet. And there are many people, I think, my yeah. age, the children of the 80s, that are now in their 40s that learn programming in that way. It's a very yeah. recognizable experience. Yes. So this was uh, basically self-study inquiry-based, curiosity-driven, yeah, self-motivated, yeah. self and that appealed to I, what I think is a quite narrow demographic. Yes. And I guess one of uh, the points that came as a surprise to, to certainly myself as a teacher, and, and uh, also I guess to many other people, is that this doesn't actually work for most people. Yes. This is not a good way of teaching <laughs> in particular children to program, but it's even true for grown-ups. Yes. Yeah, because it requires like you need to be really certain that there's light on the other side of the tunnel because it will be really hard you'll run into lots of error messages it'll be very complicated you need a lot of my native language say you need a lot of sitting flesh yes you need sit to be flesh. Yes. sit flesh yes. yes you need to be able to sit for a very long time uh -huh. um and if you're the type of kid that's like i don't know if i like programming right uh -huh. i'm still like what is programming let me just dip my toe into the water of programming and then it's just you have to type this and you get so many error messages and it's so confusing it's not clear if it's going anywhere a lot of kids will just drop out they will not have the stamina because they don't know if it's going to be fun but it is you and i know that right but, <laughs> yes, but, but certainly the, the wall that you run into yes. as a child uh, is can, can be very frustrating and i guess it doesn't really make a difference whether you're 10 or 21 when you learn, want to learn this because this is a hard this is a hard thing to learn right? programming is not much easier than playing the violin or running 10 kilometers in under 50 minutes or yes. many other things that are learnable but where there's some pushback or tension in the beginning yeah and i think the interesting thing about programming is you have to learn a few things at the same time so you have to learn syntax but you also have to learn programming concepts like what is a condition or what is a variable and you have to learn how to combine the concepts so how to how to create a problem solving strategy and even with small programs, you at least need to do both syntax and concepts. And very soon, you also need to do a little bit of program, like problem solving, program planning or strategy finding. And this is interestingly different than running fast or long or playing the violin even? I think so, yes. Um, so, and you have a current project about a programming language target exactly that. Maybe yes. we can get back to that because I think that does many things right, in particular uh, teaching uh, because of the of the uh, learning curve. Yes. Right? Uh, uh, maybe an, uh, to phrase this in computer games uh, uh, terminology, there is there is no tutorial mode for programming. Right. You have to do many quite difficult things at the same time. At the same time, exactly. And and the progression is not. We haven't really thought about the progression very very yes. much so far. And I think this is why it's different from, for example, playing the violin. Like, I don't play the violin, so... <laughs> my understanding, I played, played piano and saxophone, so my understanding of playing an instrument is yeah. there are a few things to learn. Like, you have to place your fingers in a certain way, you have to have a few chords, but you don't need to figure out, like, what to do, because you'll have a teacher, most likely you're not learning music by yourself, you'll have sheet music that you can read, you have music that you can listen to, so you do have to have concepts like chords and syntax as in finger yeah, placement, yeah, yeah. but at least there's one element of, okay, but how do I do this is absent unless you're maybe composing music. Okay, but uh, so to stay in the analogy which I'm just making up, then this would correspond to teaching children to 
read the music to understand the notational system and put the fingers in the right place and interact with the other players yes. uh, and dress nicely and so on yeah. for a concert yes. all at the same yes. time. And invent basically and, new and music. And oh yeah, by the way, yes. mu and, and also have, yeah, we, we also yeah. really want you to have fun now. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, I know, yes, have fun. Yes. Don't forget to yes. smile. Yes, exactly. <laughs> smile and be creative. Yes. Uh, um, so I, I think many of the things that make programming hard for children are exactly the same things that make programming hard yes. for, yeah. for, for any for, beginner. Yeah. I don't think there's yes. necessarily no. a difference. Uh, even though we are learning creatures, so there are many things that we learn for free, like natural, our natural language is yes. typically learned for free, but if I had to sit down and learn Dutch now, that would be difficult, and French would be even harder, yes. and Chinese would be impossible. Um, so uh, programming is difficult, but it's uh, doable and learnable. But um, uh, one of the things, so, so your, your wonderful book explains many of the things that makes programming difficult. And some of these pages I just uh, read and said, oh, that was interesting. And in other pages I said, oh, I, if only somebody had told me this before. Yes, right? this is why it, I wrote the book. Yes. Like I learned so many things about learning. And then I thought, why don't I know these things? Like, why didn't I know these things? If you take a bachelor or master's degree in computer science, the teachers, the professors will tell you, oh, but you will learn many programming languages in your life. You have to keep learning but no one teaches you how to actually keep learning, right? They just assume if you know one programming language, you will magically also know all the other ones and you don't know how to do it. So just translating from one programming language to another is difficult. And then yes. there will be many mis misunderstandings that you can avoid by being aware of this. But let's, so let's start with the first step of getting from no programming language yes. to some programming language, right? Uh, so what is sort of the, um, what are the things that make programming hard? I, this is a big question, but maybe yes. you can yeah, so I sort of think, like we discussed this earlier a little bit, that, that it is multiple things at the same time. That is one thing that is difficult about it. What is also very difficult, I think, is the curse of knowledge. Like, if you know something, then you immediately forget how hard it is that you've learned the thing. So I think many... The teacher is certainly cursed yes, with that. Yes, Many teachers will say, oh, syntax doesn't matter. Oh, it doesn't matter if you learn Java or Python because it's about the concepts and about problem solving. The syntax doesn't matter. But at the same time, so this is your one teacher, the teacher. You also have your compiler, which is in a sense also a teacher. The compiler does not say syntax is irrelevant. No, no, the compiler it is very strict about that. Missing yeah. semicolon, unexpected yeah. end of file. So the fact that something like learning syntax is hard, but then all the professionals, the teachers, the professors say that something is not hard, creates like this brain map. Yeah, so I, I happen to think that syntax is really hard, but I also enjoy learning new programming languages. Yeah. So I think also most teachers are disabused of this notion of falsely thinking that syntax yes. is hard yes. when they start teaching. Yes. Because, because certainly when they interact with students, they will see that 90% of the interaction yeah. in the beginning is really about the semicolons really about the and the curly brackets yes. and why is it one and a two yeah. equality signs. But then in my like experience and understanding, Professors then will not say, oh, but this is an understandable difficulty. Don't worry about it. With a little bit of practice, this syntax too will come. They will keep insisting that it's not so very important. That is not, the course is not about syntax. Whereas for many students, learners at high school, elementary school or university level, it is about syntax. I think that is like a core it's issue. like like learning Arabic. If, yes. if the first the letters are in the way, it and once the letters, yeah. But yeah. if you talk to an Arabic speaker, they don't even see them. Same yes. is true for exactly. Chinese. Or, yes. yes. Um, so your book is full with these observations about what is hard. It's also super useful because you give tips what you can do about it. So, yes. so yeah. What should I? So pretend I want to learn some new obscure language like Rust. Yeah. What, what should I do? Yeah. So definitely you should practice syntax, and especially as a someone that is professional or proficient already in other languages, you might think, oh, you know, I'll read through it, but that doesn't get you far. So you should actually memorize a little bit of syntax just so you get easier, it gets easier to read stuff mm -hmm. and be really aware about differences between languages. So many of the things you know now will not work or will work in a slightly different way in Rust. Dangerously so almost work. Dangerously yeah. similar, yeah, yeah, both in terms of syntax and concepts. So let's do cognitive science 101. How can I learn to memorize? Uh, I mean, so, so maybe, okay, one, one approach to that would be just learning by doing, just sit down 
tour and write uh, write uh, five thousand lines of Rust. Yeah, this is doable, but probably not the most effective way. So there are ways that are more effective, like flashcards mm -hmm. that you might know from learning a second or third natural language. Mm -hmm. Not on one side you put Danish and on the other side you put French, and mm -hmm. then you pick up a word and you're like, do I know this word? I think so, and then you flip it around. So what, for programming language, it would be curly brackets on one side and nothing on the other, if it's from Java to Python, or? <laughs> yes, so you could have a snippet with a little bit of indentation. And then the key there is called retrieval practice. So the thing is, you should look at the code snippet and then try to retrieve from memory what's on the other side. Yeah. You shouldn't just like read your notes, because what we know from cognitive science is trying to remember something will strengthen your memory of the thing. It's like if you have a jungle and the first day you find your way to the jungle and then you know you like oh this is where I have to stay tonight. Then there's a little bit of flattened grass. This is how your memory works. Yes. If the next day you go over the path and the next day you go over the path again in a while it will be very easy for someone to find your little jungle house. This is your memory also. Every time you try to remember something, you flatten the grass, you get rid of the weeds. So why don't that why don't that just turn over the page, uh, why don't that just flip over the flashcard? Yes, because the the little jingle pad in your memory is only created when you try to retrieve a memory from ah, your long-term okay. so memory. So the tension is important. The, yes, the effort the has to be slightly effortful. Even yep. if you then don't remember, still trying to remember this is how you strengthen your memory and this is interesting because it goes somewhat contrary to what programmers sometimes think like oh i don't have to memorize anything because i can simply look it up and google if you look something up and you don't actively try to remember this jungle path will never appear and you consistently be looking it up all the time so let me let me just give the false claim and then you can push back i can actually look it up but yes. I, I forget bash syntax all the time and yes. I look it up. And what's the problem with that? That you will never remember it. And yes. this is maybe not important for something you do once a year, right? Bash. But if, yes. But, mm. but if you do something very often, looking it up just takes a lot of energy. Um, and then specifically, if you look it up on the internet, then what happens to me is you open another browser tab, you find your search, and they're like, oh, wait, oh, I have an email, oh, I have a notification on LinkedIn. Cat right? picture. Cat picture. Yeah. And so specifically in the sea of internet distraction, even leaving your IDE to look something up, it takes time. There's interesting research by Chris Parnin on this, going out of your task and coming back, being interrupted by something like a phone call or a colleague or looking something up. It takes about 15 minutes for you to like get back on your feet. This is the flow that developers really like. It disturbs your flow if you have to do another task and then come back. There's this beautiful comic strip about this where you see a, a, speech, a thought bubble in a programmer's brain slowly yes. building up a intricate structure of the flow of uh, of a program, program or variables yeah. or whatever it is. And then some somebody else comes in and asks a, an unimportant question and, and then poof, yeah, it poops. Yes. Yeah. This also happens if you look something up, then of course you will forget what, what, what did I need the bash for? Yeah. And then of course, again, if you do this occasionally, it's not so very important, but if you're in the middle of programming and you have to leave your IDE to look something up, it's just very disruptive for mm -hmm. your working memory. Yeah, that's another, I mean, distraction-free environments is, an, is also a really, really important way yes. of, of getting, get, getting focus. I want to talk about cognitive load a bit more later. Yes. Let's just do uh, finish the. Uh, so, I, I guess this is 19th century uh, science. This, these first experiments in in memorization, right? Yes. 1880s definitely. or something. Yes, or some, very old. Some, yeah. These, uh, where researchers were trying to get kids to memorize poems. I'm uh -huh. like, why doesn't this work? Yeah, yeah. It's very old science. Yeah, and and some German dude who uh, I guess trained himself to memorize long sequences of words yes. and then timed himself in how long it took to retrieve them and yes. actually had very impressive data on that for a 10-year yes. uh, year long research project. And there's also, this, project. also in the book, uh, this, this dude that forced his wife and two children to learn French words and yes. then he kept quizzing them yes. about yes. what they would still Wonderful remember. Dad, but he did it for science. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> ethics committees nowadays yeah. probably wouldn't like... Yeah, you can only do that with PhD you students now. Really yes. on testing yes. on your own kids. No. <laughs> well, we learned something. We learned yes, something about good. programming. It was that's for science. Uh, it yes, was, it was worth doing. Um, uh, so let's get back to cognitive load, where we, uh, we we just opened that because there are many things that are difficult in learning to program, and you have this 
this, these three different um, bullet points, actually long-term, short-term, working, working memory. Yes. So that, that helped me a lot to understand why, why is something difficult, right? Yes. And just, just understand. So when, when I try to learn something and sometimes it's difficult and I'm, I'm so my mindset is that I actually think this is slightly great because it's difficult. So I, I'm, uh, uh, yes. I, I'm motivated by nice being slightly, yes. You, yes. But, but, I, but not everybody is like that, and many people have better things to do with their time. But just understanding why is it difficult yes. helps a lot. So you have this one, two, three a model of long-term, short-term and working memory. Yes. So why are, yeah, explain. Yes, so this is also for me, this is like, this is not my model, right? This already exists for a very long time. But for me, it was so helpful in understanding why something is hard. And for example, if you imagine a programming language that you don't know, like let's say Rust, you don't know Rust. Imagine if you look at a programming language that you don't know, you might think, even as an experienced person, oh no, I can never learn this, this is too hard. But then if you know this is just my long-term memory lacking knowledge, like it's not that you, you are not able to understand, it's just a thing you don't know yet. Like you might not know Arabic or Chinese mm -hmm. or something. Whereas in another situation, you might look at a program in a programming language that you're familiar with, but it's just a very badly designed program and lots of like, cryptic variable names and stuff that gets passed around, then it's not a matter of, I don't know the syntax, I don't know this concept yet. Then it's a matter of, oh, my brain needs to work really hard to figure out what's going wrong. Uh, so the difference is between reading very well-designed code in APL and, yes. and crazy code in Python, uh, Alang, Python yeah. which I know, yeah. which I know by heart. Yes, and, and these are different. Exactly. These are difficult for different reasons. Yes, and it helps. At least help me so much to like be softer to me to me as a person, because it wasn't like oh I will never be able to do this. It's like this is hard, and I understand why because I lack the understanding of whatever's going on for a familiar language in an unfamiliar part of code, and. I, I lack the knowledge, like lacking understanding and lacking knowledge are different things. Yeah, so that, that's a lovely perspective to understand, to be kind to yourself and yes. also to others. And to others, yeah, and, that and, too. And so uh, it's understanding that the admission of ignorance is actually some way of being kind to yourself yes. and, and not holding up yourself up to yeah. impossible But at the same time, it's also actionable, right? Yeah, exactly. Because yes. if I... Well, kindness is actionable. Yeah. It's, it's, if, yeah. I, if I see, oh, but I just don't... Oh, wait, this is one syntax. I've never seen this. There's a path now. I can look it up. And then the book has a lot of strategies also for if you have to read complicated codes, you know the syntax, you know the concepts, but you don't know what's going on. There's a lot of strategies that you can use to help you support your working memory. So if you know what type of cognitive issues you are encountering, then the book also helps you figuring out how to get out of the hole. So, so not knowing the APL syntax, which is, by the way, crazy, yeah. and, and not knowing the specific Python library, I don't know, PyTorch, yeah. the, these are the same kind of lack of knowledge, right? This yes. is long-term memory yes, that the same I... same category, of course, they're different from each other, but yeah. they're same the same category, there is a concept or syntax that you just, you don't know. Which I could remedy by just sitting down and working through that. Yes. Area. And if you yep. suspect you will use it more often, memorizing it so the next time you encounter it, it will be easier for you to read. And the skill set there is both actually just using it. It's typically, I need to know, I, I stumble over a new library which I need for, because I have reason to believe that this solves the task I'm doing right yeah. now. I don't want to write the parser for blah. Yes, or I want to do yeah, it yeah, like yeah, quickly yeah, with yeah, someone yeah, else's code. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, so I just plug it in and it almost works and then I have to learn a bit more. Yeah. So, that is self-driven and motivating, and, and there's a clear goal, and it's yes. problem-driven, so it's not stupid to do that. But if I have to l use this more and more, yes. then a more systematic approach would be at least as yes, useful. Actually, definitely. reading and the documentation. And less frustrating. Probably. And less frustrating. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so, so that is long-term memory, which we yes. can do something about. And the others are short-term memory and, and, working memory and working memory. Yes. Why are these not the same? Yeah, yeah, so just puts it over the base whether they're the oh, same or not. Yeah, okay. uh, there's a, like a little footnote in the book. Um, but for me, short-term memory is really when you remember something. For example, you look something up in, uh, in Google and you have to take that and move it to your ID, right? You have to remember it. A phone number or... A phone yeah. or a code snippet or a, like a specific order of parameters in a function call. You look yeah, it up good, in the docs and good. you go back to your code. Good example. And that's really remembering something. Whereas your working memory is more like your, the processor of your brain, where you're taking what's in your short-term memory and doing something with it, reasoning about it, but they are very related to each other.
I can do more about the latter, right? The, the code that is confusing to me because it's, I don't know, a tree traversal or an obscure way of computing the Fibonacci numbers by yes. iterated matrix multiplication or a recursive function call. Uh, that is not short-term memory because the code is right there. Yes, but you I, have to do something with it. Like I have this example in the book of a little bit of basic code where you will understand all the concepts if you're a, like a regular programmer, but then now you have to... I usually often have my finger, like if I have code and I, I am tempted to use my finger to point at things, this is why my working memory is activated. I'm like, what is this parameter? Why what do I divide by two? Yeah, yeah. right? Why do I divide by two yeah. here and, yes. and not there? Exactly. So this is your working memory. You have to figure out what's going on and it takes cognitive energy to do this. So how do I increase the working memory? This is not possible. <laughs> so what do I do? I just give up when I see code I don't understand? Or Sometimes, yes. Yeah. But there are things you can do. So your working memory is very limited. Um, research shows that just two to four elements fit in your working memory. Very limited. <clears throat> but then if you have a sheet of paper next to you, this is almost unlimited. Yeah. So what you can do if you feel your working memory get full is offload some of your working memory to a piece of paper, like draw a diagram or a graph try to offload something. A debugger can also really help if you're figuring out what is the value of this. You can step through the code and every step is small. So every step might fit in your working memory. And then you can do two steps and four steps and manipulating the code, refactoring for understandability so, is also something that can So help. even kind of Wild West debugging, which I do a lot with just a bunch of print statements, that would qualify? That can help, yeah. yes, yes. You, of course, you have to keep tabs on, am I making progress or am I just running this code seven yeah. times and oh. have I not learned a thing? Yeah. And sometimes also when you understand two or three lines in a row, you can say, okay, this I understand. I can, for example, make a function call here with these, just these two li three lines and then read the rest. This is what I call a cognitive refactoring. Yeah. I'm refactoring the code because the functionality stays the same, but I'm not necessarily doing it to commit this to uh, the repository. I'm doing it now temporarily to support my understanding. Or actually, actually rewriting the code or just actually in your brain? Actually rewriting the code. Sometimes like it can changing also the for loop to a list comprehension, if, if that's example, natural for yes. you. Or, or if you have three lines, just uh, do extract method and put this in a method. Oh, I've understood what those three lines do. Maybe this is the initialization code. I just replace these three lines with initialize. And then I, I do not have to think about this. It doesn't fit my working memory now. I will just continue initialize. Okay, next few lines. And then maybe this is better, right? Maybe you will leave the code like this if you're finished understanding, but maybe also you just leave it like this. Or like simpler examples might be renaming a variable, adding a comment. All these things are cognitive refactorings. You're just making all the things that you have to put in your working memory smaller by offloading the part that you already understand to the paper or yeah. the IDE. Yeah. yeah, I think that that is one of the progressions I see with our students here at at ITU where we teach a lot of really smart people who have no programming experience. Programming, I can see when I walk through the hallways week after week, there's more and more paper to the right of the laptop. Yes. So in the first yes. weeks, they sit with the laptops and stare at it and look quite, quite frustrated. <laughs> and then after three or four weeks, there will be, always be a piece of paper with some doodles on it. Just yes. state, state diagrams of what is the yes. value of the variable, yeah. what are the variables called. Um, so that was like the, the first thing. Why, why is this hard? And, and the, a text, a working taxonomy that you use actively with yourself to understand why things are hard and what you can do about it yes. uh, seems to be super useful because it makes stuff less frustrating. Yes. Um, so other tips and tricks, and many of the tips and tricks are stuff that uh, stodgy old programming teachers like me teach, but they yes. actually work as like uh, naming variables um, and uh, classifying them into types. That was another insight that I was not aware of uh, that uh, not all integer variables are the same, right? Yes. Integer variables can have very different roles, and we should have some terminology or taxonomy in putting these into different conceptual boxes. Yeah, I, I love think you have this. 12 of these boxes. Yes, or yes, again, this is not my work. This is just work I report on in the book. Uh, Sayanimi is a Finnish researcher mm -hmm. that came up with this roles of variables framework that indeed says sometimes an integer is stepping through a list like for i in range 1 to 10. That's what he calls a counter or this a walker. That's what he calls a counter, I yes. It's a counter, yeah. Um, no, I think a stepper. A stepper, a yes. Stepper? It's a stepper, yes. yes. 
But sometimes uh, an integer value might be an accumulator where you say uh, sum is zero and every iteration of the list you're adding the value into. So both are, the the, for the compiler, both are the type integer, but from the perspective of especially the novice programmer, these are very, very different things. Yeah. And pointing out that they're different, giving a vocabulary yeah. for look, this is a stepper. And this, I think as an educator, this is such a valuable framework because you can ask a student, hey, that's I, is that a stepper or is it an accumulator? And if they already don't know this, then it doesn't make sense for them to continue programming. Mm -hmm. Then yeah. they're just stuck in a way that they don't know yet. Now, I found that uh, super nice and, uh, and for like, sort of trying to break down a program which is just a bunch of text in the beginning <laughs> yes. uh, into these various roles which are not types that was that was interesting to me so there's a tradition we are almost at the emacs versus vim debate which we will we will get to but we have there's another there's another religious debate here <laughs> about naming variables uh, with um, there's this hungarian method uh, due to simone yes and you're you're slightly more open to the idea of prefixing the name of the variable, not with a type, but with the role. With the role, yes. Yeah. I th actually think this, this Hungarian notation does make some sense, um, specifically, again, for novice programmers. If you name a stepper a stepper, this helps in understanding, uh, not just if you have to understand code by someone else, but also while you're, while you're problem solving, we might not lose track of what variable is used for what as experts, but a beginner might need this like stuff to hold on to. So if they can offload some of their understanding of what the variable is doing into the name, this is going to be very helpful. And that is interestingly different than one of the things that I'm always slightly annoyed with when I see a novice programmers programming, that they have a variable that would be called the int. Yes, yes. And yeah. the int is a really bad name because yeah, you're just yes, naming yes. the variable by the type yes. used to hold the variable. And th this is not giving you extra information because in most no. IDEs, you can hover over the variable and it will tell you what the yeah. type is. Yes. So this is not storing extra information no. in your brain into your view, but saying this is a stepper or this is an accumulator value But still, this, this, this seems to be very easily accessible to a novice programmer to suddenly understand the whole world in terms of ints and strings. Yes. So, so when they try to solve the first program, all the variables will be called yes. the int and then the other ints. And this is so cool about the roles of variables framework that the, this author says 99% of all novice programs can be covered with these roles. So it's a really small and clear framework, but it does allow a beginner like, oh, this is, this is now something I can, I can find my footing. Yeah, and accumulator and stepper are, are clearly better. Yes. And I think they're also accessible in a way that a really good variable name is not. Because I guess yes. coming up with the really good variable name for... Is very hard. Is very hard, yes. right? And then experts, also teachers in their examples, are sometimes a little bit sloppy. Um, all, all the counters might be called I, and all but the accumulators might be I'm a mathematician, what, yes. what could be wrong with that? Yes, yeah, that is the not, that, variable that, names are of course X and Y and that, P. That yes. is not so clear mm. for a beginner what, what the type is or what the role is. So yeah, this framework is just like very, very cool. And this was called the, let's just get, variable roles or what? Roles of variables. Roles of variables. And the author yes. is called Saya Nimi. It's a Finnish author. So speaking of Finnish authors, you, you mentioned another Finnish author who has this amazing list of 162 different programming <laughs> mistakes. Yes, misconceptions. Misconceptions. Yes. Because, so there are things that are hard to learn and where there's just a, where there's just there's stuff you have to learn and it's still hard in the beginning and you sort of become better and better at it but and and um and that is difficult but there are other things that are hard to learn because you misunderstood something yes so this and, is called a misconception yes. and the other finnish author is called juha sorva and as part of his phd thesis that wasn't necessarily about misconceptions he made this really nice list like a, a literature survey of other papers that have not where the student isn't confused, but they really misunderstand something. An example, you might think as a student coming from math that the equal sign is commutative. That Not only from math, right? This yeah. is what we tell them everywhere. Yes. yes, two plus one is three, three is two plus one. Yes. And now we're in the world of programming, so you see A is five, you might think, oh, I might also type five is A. 
Why not? Right? Yeah, that, that, that's the con and, makes, and, and another sense. example is uh, temperature equals base plus twelve. Yeah. Where you might be might falsely assume that that means that from now on temperature will this always be base plus twelve, yes. and when somebody changes base then temperature also yes. changes. And this is true in some programming languages, like in yes. Excel, yes. this would be true. Yes. Um, so this is a situation where from another field or sometimes from another programming language, students assume that something is true and it's not. And this is harder than just them being confused because if they assume something is the case, they do not look up further information. No, of course Because they think yeah. they already know and it. All learning is like that, right? Yes. All learning is finding these uh, hooks that you can hang your intuition onto, yeah. and as long as it works, yes. uh, you actually will stick to that. And it can and be very persistent, yes. specifically if it's not syntax-based, where the compiler will tell you, hello, you have the wrong idea, buddy, this is not going to go well, then if you, own, if you, for example, run an interpreted language where only at the runtime you will realize your mistake and the, the path between programming and figuring out your mistake is really long, you might not connect it with something you're very sure is not Then incorrect. at least you get 32 lines of completely obscure error message back. <laughs> yes, we will get back to that, that also because we, we need to talk about Hedy in a, in a, in a moment. I, I like these misconceptions. So one of my, f uh, I talk to novice programmers a lot. They are grown-ups, they're not kids, so they're able to sort of formulate what, what is wrong in a way that is uh, more informative than kids. But it's still, it's just super satisfying for me to to see all these uh, learning moments. My favorite example is uh, one of our super bright students who simply couldn't get past this particular exercise, which I thought was really easy. And we, we talked a lot and, and there was growing tension until the student said, oh, can you have more than one if in a method? Yeah. And of course you can. How, how would you design a programming language yeah. that disallowed? It's much easier to have a syntax that allows more than one if. Yes. Then, but and I looked through the textbook, and yes, correctly, all methods in that textbook yes. so far had exactly one if statement yes. or a while statement, yeah. but never an if inside an if yeah. or an if after an if. Yeah. One of so, my favorite examples is functions. Very often, functions use in the definition the same variable name as when calling it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you have temperature is five, and then the method is, I don't know, maximum or something. Convert to and Fahrenheit. And you put in the temperature, yeah. and then, oh, convert to Fahrenheit is a better example. Convert temperature. And then in the function definition, it's also called temperature. Of course. And then students think this has to be the case. Of course. Yes. And then they never disconnect yeah. these things so as being two yeah. distinct variables. And, and then they might think that changing the temperature in the function means it's also changed at the call size. Yeah. And it, it's very hard to see. So this is some kind of false induction. Yes. A, a, a wrong mental model has been built yeah. that is consistent with, with, the examples with, with all shown. the examples. Yes. So, um, and it's hard to understand that somebody could even misunderstand this. Yes. And then as soon as this example with the if statements became clear, then I could sort of see all the puzzle pieces fall into place. Yes. And from then on, it was just full speed ahead. Yeah. Um, and this reminds you as an yeah. educator to yeah. vary your examples yes. so that you also have yes. two ifs or a four and a if or whatever. Yeah. And always be, uh, also be aware of the fact as an educator, my, my own brain is conspiring against me by only <laughs> showing me positive examples. Right? Yes. We all suffer from confirmation bias. Yes. All our brains are all our brains try to preserve our self-image, so I will only find examples that sort of flatter my preconceptions yes. and the positive examples and of the exactly models. exactly, and the rest yes. will just not yes. remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so brains suck, but that's just uh, part of life and part of learning. Um, I also like the example with the while loop, right? It seems it's, uh, so a while loop has this condition after it, and then there's a block of code, and the block of code is is evaluated while the condition is true, and that's yeah. actually how we tell people, but it's a lie. The condition <laughs> is only evaluated at the end of the block of code. Yes. And, and, the, and the program does not jump out of the while yeah. loop when the condition is false. And some kids, they are learners, or can also be students, they think that if you invalidate the condition in the middle yes. of the body, it makes so much sense. Of course. So why, why don't we have that construction? Yes. It's it also like in, in natural language, we, I, you will say to me, you ha we will sit here while the podcast is going. Yes. It's not that every five minutes, I'm nope. like, is the podcast still nope. going? Oh, we have to stay. No, immediately when it ends, we could go. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so that's hard for a different reason. That's hard because it's a misconception, yes. not because there's a cognitive load yes. on you. Uh, yeah, so cogn cognition in... I'm. I'm somewhat frustrated that there seems to be so little research. So your book covers a lot of the research in cognitive science about programming, but I would expect cognitive scientists to be all over this because there's so many interesting questions about learning and understanding that could be 
studied on yes. programmers. Yes. Um, but there seems to be very little research on this. Yeah, so I think it is getting better. Mm -hmm. So compared to 10 years ago when I started to like work on the book a little bit, more and more people are getting into this. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe, so I don't know why, right? But I can hypothesize, I think it has to do something with computer science coming out of math um, and being very much tied to research methods from mathematics and research philosophy from mathematics. I think it took us a while as a field to figure out, hey, we can learn something from the social sciences, like famous Dutch computer scientist Edgar Dijkstra mm -hmm. uh, has this, he wrote these sort of blog post avant la lettre that he wrote yes. and mailed to everyone. Yes. He has this like flaming piece about that social scientists should not kid themselves into thinking they have anything to add to the field of computer science. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was like just him vocalizing his own opinion. I think that at certainly the time no, was, was sort of seen by many people that the field of computer science is just applied math and why would social sciences help math? Um, so I suspect that it just took us a while to figure out this is a field about people and not a field about uh, symbols only. It is both, right? It is about, it's yeah, 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 that's it's what both, makes it yes. hard also because we kind of pretend it's math and we kind of pretend it's language and it's both yeah. and neither. But specifically software engineering, where yes. not one person is writing a tiny algorithm that can be proven correctly, but a bunch of people across generations, across continents are building something together. So that now you're, now you're people, telling me that, pro thing. yeah, I'm a competitive programmer. Now you're telling me that programming is not about like writing 12 lines of code that will be run exactly once and then never again back to. Oh, yeah, that is programming, but there's yes. more programming yes. that also needs to be researched. Yeah, and yeah, in particular when you interact in a larger programming project, which is yes. a super cool and satisfying thing yeah. to do, um, whether or not it's with sort of paired up with somebody you're in the room with or you're part of an open source project, yeah. that's a huge learning experience because it's a different skill set. Yes. Related to programming, but not identical to programming. Yeah. Um, and it's also a lot so people like me, uh, so most of the code I interact with is, is code I write myself, which I find is good fun, but that is not typically what a programmer spends most of their time no. on. And then sadly, if you look at many university curricula, then what they do is exactly writing code themselves I'm, I'm alone. I'm guilty, guilty of that, uh, Me of too, me yes. too, yeah, all of us are. So it's really hard for them also. Very often my friends in industry say, well, these kids that come from your program, Felina, they do not know anything. Like, they don't know no. version control and testing, right? It's like, no, that's not the stuff we teach them. At least not enough. Like, a lot of that you still have to learn after. It is very... So, I design educations, and this is actually... It's, it's a hard problem it for an education to teach, to find teachers that are academic, academically accredited to teach, for instance, version control. Yeah. Right? Because version control is not an academic discipline like, I don't know, data structures yeah. is. So it's difficult to become a professor of version control and yeah. have an active research agenda. Unless you're like building the version control algorithms and there's yes. probably some research there, yes. but that yeah. is not like, how do you yeah. fix a merge conflict in Git? No, no. So, so it is actually structurally difficult for yeah. an education to attract teachers that yeah. are good at this thing. I think here at IT, we're really, really good at that, right? And, and it's, it's hard enough to be still fun and challenging for students. Uh, but uh, yeah, finding these people who are, who are really good at DevOps or yeah. uh, software development. Yeah, or full stack. Yeah, yeah. yeah full stack. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, they are hard to find. Also, industry, of course, has yeah. completely different uh, uh, remuneration frameworks for them. Uh, and they actually have a, uh, very satisfying jobs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, getting them through the tenure process is, is not easy. Yeah. No, I get that. Um, but yeah, I think we're doing some things right here, um, and it's it's a lot of fun. But software development is really about reading code as much as it is, is yes, about writing code. Yes, definitely. Yes, so, and, and also about like learning about reading will also help you make more readable code. Yes, because so I, I basically write for myself, and I, I'm good enough friends with me that I want to be kind to myself. <laughs> so I try to read. I try to write code that I can understand later on. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that I'm I'm, uh, I'm completely egoistic about that. Um, <laughs> But um, interacting with others is really is, is a social process, and yes. you interact and the and the um, substrate along which you interact with other people in software development is code, yes. which you have to read, 
uh, other, and so you write not only for the compiler, yeah. The dreaded compiler again. Yeah. You also write for, for, for the other, other people. people. Yeah. And they might have greatly varying backgrounds. If you're in a professional context, then uh, you are friendly to yourself, but also you share prior knowledge with yes. yourself. Yes. But someone in a company or in an open source project also, maybe someone comes in and this programming language they have never seen or they're not proficient enough or they know the programming language, but all of the concepts, like we, I write a parser, like people might know Python, but if you've never written a parser, then writing, reading parsing code in Python is still very hard. Oh, yeah. So you also yeah, yeah. must think of who is the expected audience of this and what if they don't know what a parse tree is? Yeah, or this particular trick, uh, this particular yeah. algorithmic trick. Yeah, I, I, this I, library yeah, or yeah, yeah. all uh, these things. Yeah, I, I do uh, uh, some work with high school kids in competitive programming who write extremely obscure C++ code <laughs> and clearly address other people who have the same background. So yeah. it will be sort of almost ununderstandable that this is sort of the, the convexity trick in dynamic programming and yeah. there are 15 people on the planet who understand this. Um, uh, and there's a lot of learning for them to do, to, to, yes. to write stuff that is useful to other people than yeah. just uh, uh, solving this particular very tricky problem. Um, uh, but so getting back to um, naming conventions, and, and maybe that could be a segue into your current project with, uh, with Hedy. Um, so, so, so your cu current project is a, not only a programming language, but also basically a uh, pedagogic, a didactical project, I guess. It's an yeah. unramping, to a, a trajectory, we might trajectory, say. Trajectory, yes. very nice word. A trajectory to an. Uh, oh, the other, the other. We will get back to trajectory. Very nice word later. The other word that I had to look up was notional. <laughs> so a notional machine. Can we, before we go to Hedy, can we talk about notional machines? Of course, yes. Uh, so, is that just a machine model? So yeah, explain the word notional machine. Yes. So notional has to do with notion. Yeah. And a notional machine is. If you think about what the program is doing, what is the machine that you're thinking of? Uh, for example, um, if you have assignments, you might think, oh, x is 5 and the next line is i is x plus 3. You might think of substitution. You're like, oh, this 5, it goes in place of the x. And this right. is the way you yeah. might think that the machine works. This is not how the machine actually works. Like we don't think about memory and pushing stuff into registers. So the machine you're thinking of is a machine that takes the five and puts it in place of the X. Right. This is what you imagine the machine to do, which is an abstraction over what the machine actually does. This is a notional machine. So the von Neumann model is a notional machine. Yes, or... but it's already a very complicated one. Right, so having uh, understanding variables as boxes that I put values in. Yes, this is a, more a, a learner's mental model where you say, oh, if you oh. store a variable into the computer, you take this five, you have a box that's called X, and then you take this five and you put it into the box. This is also a notional machine. This is how oh, that you already think. does a lot, right? That that that, that avoids yes. many misunderstandings, like yes. x x equal five being an equation. Yes. Right. Yes. This tells us that five goes into the X box. Yeah. So I think you have two of these different ways of understanding what x equals five. I mean, there's the box, there's the box notion, and there's the label notion. Yes, exactly. Well, there, there, there are many different ways, but there's two sort of competing ways that we did some research into. Um, because the problem with a box is that students might think multiple values go into the box. So you might have x equals or becomes ten, and then x becomes five. They might think, oh, I have a box. 10 and then 5. What is in the box? Oh, it is 15, right? Or so, ah, your box became a set. Yes. It's a box, it's big. M many values can go in. Oh, making, uh, okay, and that gets even worse if, you, worse if your programming language has set x equal 5, has the word set in and it the word as set a. set in it, yes. yes. Or they might, students might also think that the, the first value is still there. So it's 10 and then 5 goes on top. And then I but can if remove I would the want 10. to, oh, I could still go back to now. the. Yes. yes. They don't know what a stack is, but they no, know no, that this is a mental it's, it's model. It's a very natural yeah. So thing. the problem yeah. with a box, we found in our research that a box is easy. It's a good way to explain to absolute beginners. But once you have consecutive assignments to the same variable, then the box gets more confusing than it is helpful. 
So what's the alternative to the box? Just a box that can only hold one value? Yes, or? so that's sort of a hack, right? So we have these nice videos where like, look, this value is exactly the size of the box or the box has a shredder and the old value goes out at the bottom, but then it becomes too complicated. Okay. So you also have the label, which like a sticker, you say a variable is like a name tag you put on yourself. Hey, I'm Feline. There's one name sticker and I can put my sticker on something else. This so let is me get not this. so natural, but it does remove the confusion that there's just one sticker and it only attaches to one value and not to two. So here I need then all the integers to be... There's a line of integers and I put labels on some of them. Yes, exactly. Yes. I have my temperature sticker and I can place the temperature sticker on, on the value 30, 20. On 20. And, yes. and I can put another sticker on the same value. Yes. But the sticker is only attached to one value. I have to peel it off and stick it on another value okay. if I, I want okay, it to and move. I can see, so some of the things that become very confusing early on are, are multiple references or yeah. uh, changing the value of a list that you point to with two variables. Yes. And this all the sticker helps, but it's also more confusing because a box is very intuitive. Oh, I can put a sticker on the sticker. I, I can, okay, I can, <laughs> but, yes. okay, again, this is a way of using some kind of taxonomy yes. to make explicit exactly. and uh, to make explicit a mental model. Yes. And so, and this is a conceptual model. Yes. And notional here is just a w different word for conceptual, or am I? Yeah, or mental, right? Because notion is like the notion of, so it could also be a mental machine, but there's another sort of competing concept that's a mental model, which is not exactly the same. This is just the concept that yeah, okay. computer I, science I, I education guess, guess. settled on. And I guess I'm just frustrated because my native languages don't have a pendant to notion yeah. or do they i have concept in my in my other language and yes. i have mental yes but i don't have notion no do I? I don't either in my language there's no is it begriff in german yeah begrip yeah ah but that's also just concept yeah yes it can also be understanding so that's more confusing because it can be both cons it can mean concept it can also mean understanding the boxes I can stack on top of each other, so yes. that I like, yes. because so that gives nice. me an array. Yeah, so this points to some notional machines can be nicely composable. Right. Some of them really work together well, and others are in conflict with each other. We lost, uh, I got off the, off the trajectory, trajectory. Oh, trajectory. Yes, <laughs> well, let's get back on the trajectory, trajectory, and, and try to end with, uh, with Hedy, because, so now we go away from teaching both yourself as a working programmer. So, so most of what we said here is useful both if you want to learn to program, but also if you're already, already a, a professional, pretty, yes. pretty good programmer because yes. the naming conventions or taxonomies or understanding that moving from one language to the other is not really only about syntax. Yes. Of course, when, when I moved from a C-based language to Python, I just wrote basically C in Python for a long time, right? <laughs> yes. Still had lots of iterations. One and of then... my best friends always says, you can write Java in any language. Yes, yes <laughs> of course I can, yes. Uh, but, um, and, and now I really love Python. It gets, I'm sort of getting away from this. I still thought very much in static types. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't, uh, the, the list comprehensions seemed alien to me. But now it gets better and, 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 and clearer, and I really like this. And now it would miss it from another language, I guess. Um, but let's get back to actually teaching kids programming. Yes. Because the, many countries n need to do some work. And if we don't know how to do this, most countries want to do this. Yes. Most countries have plans uh, of teaching to children to program. And, and maybe that's a good idea. I, I, I like it. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly on board with that. But it seems to be difficult. And there yes. are many ways for why this is difficult. Yes. I've been involved in this development now for, I think, 30 years in two different countries. And, and it's organizationally difficult, it's structurally difficult, it's also didactically difficult, um, because teaching programming is hard for the same re for, for various reasons. Once it's programming itself is hard, finding people who can teach programming and want to teach programming is, <laughs> is, yeah. is, is, is also hard. But it still remains, and this is what is the start of our conversation, that you need to do all these things at the same time. Yes. So, and there you and actually have a problem. An yeah. Yes, and yeah. there I have a solution. There so you have a solution. Which... I'm actually a teacher myself, not just in university, but also in high school. So I teach 12-year-olds programming. And this is when I really realized, oh no, this is hard. 
I didn't remember from when I was a kid that it was so hard. Mm -hmm. So high, high school for you in uh, the Netherlands? at 12, is, yes. It's different from many other countries. Yeah. We start at 12 um, because we don't have middle school. So I created a programming language called Hedy that disconnects these things. So initially the syntax is really, really easy. You just have three keywords. It's just print and ask and echo. And then you don't need for print, like in Python early days, you don't need brackets, but you also didn't need quotation marks. You can just say print, hello world, and then it works. So kids can get used to, oh, this is what programming is. Oh, it's a keyword. And there's the difference between a keyword and a string. And this is what the user interface looks like. Use, there's a button and this is how stuff works. And like, okay. But that's already a lot. This is right? already a yeah, lot. Yes. yes, this is already a lot. And then... But to print, print, what? Print, print? Print, print would print, print, yes. yes. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that's uh. nice. And whatever is behind the print will be printed, even if it's whatever. So kids can get used to this is programming. And then in, we have 18 levels currently. Then in the next level, we say, okay, then now we add variables. Not only can you say print hello, you can say name is Feline, print name. And then you do not have to have brackets or comma between arguments. You can even say name is Feline, print hello name. And the hello is a string and the name is a variable name, but you still do not need quotation marks. But this is already mildly insulting to me as a programmer. I know. How, yeah. how, how, yes, and that's of course the point. That's why I phrase <laughs> I it like this. I don't like my point to insult programmers, but I see how that can no, accidentally happen. No, 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 this, it's, it's a super good example of uh, also explaining to me as a programmer because I clearly feel resistance already now. Yes. But of course, this is the right way of doing it. I'm, I'm completely on board with your project. I think this is exactly how we should do it. But let me pretend to not like it. Yes. So, so how do? So let's do this again. So Felina is no name is Felina. Prince, hello name. It's and the then the result part. of that is going to be hello Felina. Yes. The implicit goal of this entire conversation is to say your name correctly as often as possible because many people seem to get it wrong. Yes, true. That's yeah. a nice side effect. Yes. Uh, so how does the, now I'm speaking uh, a geek speak, how does the parser know which one is a variable and which one isn't? Well, basically we just parse twice. Like we parse once, we figure out what the variables is and then we parse again and we put the variable value in place of the variables. So name is Feline on line one and yes. print my name is name. Yes. This is a problem because that creates my Feline is Feline. Because all names will be replaced by the value of the variable. And this is a problem you want to have because yes. now on level two already we now on level two already we explain why this is why there are variables and why there are quotation marks yes. and why why a programmer wants for expressiveness yes. to be able to to tell the system that sometimes it's a variable and sometimes yes. it's uh, so you run into a, an issue literal. so it has multiple benefits this gradual system first the cognitive load remains low because you don't have to do many things at once and also you sort of take kids by the hand like look this is why we have syntax Early on when I was teaching, kids would say, teacher, why do quotation marks go there? I would just say, you know, just do it. Don't think about it. Oh, that's just public static, public static void main yeah. string exactly. brackets arcs just has to be there. It's a, magic, be in, there, it's a yes. magic invocation, otherwise yes. your Java program won't run. Yes. So then gradually we build up and then the final level of Haiti, which is level 18, is a subset of Python. So it's really, we take them by the hand and we show them concepts and syntax, slowly ramp up the volume until it's just Python. So you have a family of uh, less and less lenient and more and more precise or fragile syntaxes and semantics yes. that end up being Python, Python yes. or a subset of Python. A subset of Python. We don't do objects. We do for loops, while loops, functions, lists, so basically all the stuff, but not objects. Yeah, that's one thing that I love Python also as in, so why, why, why wouldn't I just advocate using Python as an introductory programming language? One thing is, of course, the thing you have with all languages that the, the error messages are just evil. 
Although they, they are getting somewhat they, better. They are, very good people. <laughs> very good people are doing very good work yeah. on, on Python, right? But it's just super frustrating yeah. for a normal person yeah. to read that. True. And the, but the other reason is that one of the, for me, most, most natural concepts in programming, repetition to a fixed bound, in Python requires somebody to understand objects, yeah. lazy object evaluation or something, yeah. right? Because in order to iterate from one to n, or from zero to n minus one, which mm. for some reason we think is more natural, requires me to make a range object yes. and then have i iterate over that. Yes. So just to print the first 100 integers. Yes, this is it, so frustrating. And this is also what I found when I was teaching. You know, a 10-year-old wants to do one to 100. It's yeah. quite a boring program. Yeah. And then you have to do for i in range. It's a really weird word. Yeah, which is and an bracket. object. Yes. And then you made an iterator over that. Yes. As a, for a professional programmer, that's completely clear. That's already, yeah. like, it's but, so many things. Yeah. So, so Hedy is both a progression of programming languages that gradually introduces more and more precise syntax, and that's not the right way of saying it. No, I think it's okay. Print, yeah, print. My name is name. Okay, it's still okay. It's very okay. Ah, so it's well defined what it does on every level. Yes. That must have been really hard. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's like like the fun stuff about this offending program is, yeah. of course, that for a kid it's sort of natural, but you can you can imagine like the work that goes into figuring out par parsing vague stuff, making sure that it actually runs, and allowing all sorts of things that we do not want to allow for obvious reasons. So, and you figured this out by introspection or by no, by observing learners, I guess. Yes, right? yes. So initially, I had the same trajectory in Python, and then all the kids were struggling. Oh, not all the kids, but most of the kids were struggling. And then I thought, well, you know, I see this issue with kids in my class, and also I know compilers. Could I not build a small prototype of a few levels to just see how this would work together? Mm -hmm. And then it became a thing. Mm -hmm. Does it other... Okay, I'm super interested about the process now of building this. Uh, are there things where you changed your mind? Like has level 15 changed from from something else to something else? Yes, definitely. So a few Give things that example. we changed. Uh, for loops. For loops are really, 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 really hard. Initially, we did do for i, um, for i. What are initial syntax? I think we just did for i is 1, 2, 10 or something. Uh -huh. So we started with numbers. Uh -huh. This was way too hard. So what we have now is we put this uh, in Python. You can also do a for loop over a list. So you can yes. do um, monkey banana tree. For x in monkey banana for tree. For things in, yes. So you, we, you create a list. Animals is a list of animals. And then you do, you do for animal in animals. So first we have them explicitly create a list and loop over the elements in the list before we make that list into a numeric list. So this, this is one of the changes this is that a, we added. This is a really, I'm learning while I speak here. So this is a really good point that cognitively, the idea of iterating over a list seems to be available to almost everyone. Yes. But if you look at the history of programming languages, that came very late. Yes, exactly. So I sort of thought of that in the history of programming. Of course, you do numbers first, yeah, and then you do something more yes. complex yeah. that is a list. But naturally, we have all these examples like students in my class, students in my class, Anna and Bjorn and Annifried for kids in class print hello kid. So iterating over an explicit list with things is a lot easier. So this is just like one of the changes that we made um, to make it easier, huh. to make it more normal, huh. like to make it closer to So how do we get life. to the, how do we get to the, uh, what is it, uh, ask? number and now i want to print out number many things I, I want to print one two three up to number yeah so that's it's only available once you have the numbers and once you have four i in range one two five so that just it takes a while in in the level trajectory before you can do this so the range object is a thing or it just produces a list it produces it? a list it produces a list uh, that's okay that seems to be the right way of doing it yeah i think so too Very cool. Okay, uh, I have to look even more into it. I really love this project. The other thing that Hedy does right, I think, and that's even more contentious, is that it's, it's in Dutch. 
Yes, and Danish, oh, and and French, Danish. and Spanish, yes. and Chinese, and Japanese, yeah. Yeah. and Arabic, and... and, and I guess this can get us back to the naming things right thing, but yeah, uh, talk to me about that. Why why do I have to write them or whatever it is in Dutch or, <laughs> or if? Uh, also, oh. you don't have to, you can. Uh, basically because I asked kids. So I did a user study early on with kids in my school where I said, well, friends, this is what I built. <laughs> what do you all think I should add? And they were like, yeah, Dutch keywords. I was like, why, right? Because. In, like, I imagine Danish teenagers, Dutch kids are really proficient in English. So I was like, why? And they were like, why not? Like, why does this system require me to learn English words? It isn't necessary. And initially, I was very, I will admit this on video, I was very skeptical. I thought, you know, it's just five words. Come on, come on, kids, don't be lazy. But then when, once we added Dutch, other people started to add different languages because the Haiti is open source. So we got uh, German and French and Spanish, and we got, it got less and less similar to English. Yes. And then we got Greek and Hindi and Bengali and Chinese. And then I thought, wow, if your first language is Bengali, of course, print is really hard. Like, imagine a teacher in India, well, we do print, and it starts with P, and kids will be like, what is a P? Right. Oh, that, that sort of level three yes. away from, yeah, yeah. But, yes, but, and but just, where but, is the P on my keyboards? But so, just, just the first step of, of switching languages between, so even if as a, as a programmer, I would agree with myself that I want my variable names to be Danish, so I don't have yeah. temperature, I have temperature. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, but then I have to switch languages all the time because the while loop still says while. Yes, exactly, yes, and comments. You might also do comments and in the, your natural language, in oh, your oh, own native language, yes. Example. Of course, yes. Because I you want, think yeah. probably in your own language. And even in industry, if you're not programming for only you, if you work in a Dutch bank, then the whole jargon of the company will be Dutch words, Dutch yeah, concepts yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. aren't so easily translatable because maybe they come from an exact Dutch law. Like we have a deduction on rent on a mortgage. It's like a specific word, hypothekerenteaftrek, which yes. has a very specific meaning. There's not a translation. So you are programming in your own language. So then I thought, you know, I was very skeptical, but I thought technically as a nerd, it's an interesting challenge to build it. And once we build it, this was an example of if you build it, they will come. We now support 47 different languages. So, yeah, I, I would be immediately on the side of your of your of your of the kids there. Well because, done you. Because, because for me, <laughs> I would take that with both hands. I observed the different tension. We can get back to that. But so, uh, from the cognitive perspective, it seems to me obvious to me that of course it has to be in the native language, yeah. just because it reduces cognitive load. Yes. Right. So this is of True. course something we should do immediately. Yes. Um, when I so I. Um, uh, I, I insist, of, for instance, I insist on using Danish terminology when I talk about science. And there I can see the exact opposite reaction from my students. But they are, of course, now grown-ups and not kids. Yes. Because language has two different roles. Language is both a, used for communicating and enlightening and so on, but it's also used to delineate in-groups. Right? Language yes. is also a, a marker of status and belonging. And university students they want the exact opposite. For them, it can't get sufficiently obscure. <laughs> so so I, I, um, I, I gave an introductory lecture on version control uh, last, uh, last spring, uh, using, of course, which is natural for me, Danish terminology. And there was an angry student who mm. sort of had the, uh, had the position that I was uh, keeping secret from them the actual yeah, magic words. Keeping them small, keeping yeah, them yeah, stupid. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yeah, and not giving them the magic words that give access to this. To literature, to, to, for yeah, example. To literature, to the in-group of cognoscenti, yeah. of the elders who actually use the grown-up words. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's super interesting to me to see this different difference that, that children seem to want the cognitively useful concept because they use language for communication. Yeah. But that's not completely true. When yeah. I was 12, we had a secret club with secret words yes. that the other secret club and didn't also, need to this learn. This might be still a, a Latin language, Western bias, yes, yes. because we do get reports from Pakistan, Afghanistan, where they really like to use Hedi, even in universities for 18 year olds in Urdu. And this teacher, this university professor emails me and says, I have never seen this level of engagement because it just lowers the threshold. So for us, 
Western languages, English is close enough well, that it has an unlocking factor. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah, yeah. definitely if your language is so far away, then you might think, oh, this English language word is cool, but you don't know how to type it, you don't know how to pronounce it. So it really is still far away. This seems to be so extra true for, say, Danish or Dutch, which are just part of the Anglosphere exactly, in any other yeah. context. I think but just going why, to Germany or yeah. Poland or France, it's completely yeah, different. This is why I think I didn't see it initially, because Dutch is just ugly English. Right. It is so oh, similar uh, yeah. Yeah, blind to the, yeah. that I didn't see the no, difference. It's morphologically similar, but it's also, also culturally similar because yes. we watch Schwarzenegger movies in English. Exactly. Yeah. All these kids, they, yeah. they listen to English-American music, right? So they're so exposed to all these words and pronunciation. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I think Hedy is just the right thing to do. It's just because not only does it sort of spread out this idea of learning to program to a much larger user base, it also does all the things right about learning the language. Uh, even though it's gradual and you have to change things uh, while you sort of, I guess, when you get from level five to level six, you have to unlearn something that you learned. But hope, yeah, if this is well motivated, I guess that's again normal. It's like yeah. also how you learn an instrument that in the beginning you play just one scale on the violin, yeah. and then in book five there will be a new yeah. scale. And, and this is also often true for math, where you have these changing mental models. Like first you do addition and then you do subtraction, but you cannot go below zero. And the teacher will say, oh, you know, you, we cannot go below zero. This is not possible. Negative numbers. After a while, they sort of unlock the curtain and like, oh, look, you can go, you can go below zero. So, so this is a normal way of, okay, that's a norm, it's a normal way of learning. Yes. Uh, consistent with yeah. how we normally learn. Yeah. Okay. Um, you got several rows of your knitting done. I did, yes. Uh, does the, is this uh, relaxing or focusing or...? Uh, it's mainly focusing, right? Yeah. It's really not... The research shows that it actually helps you concentrate. Mm -hmm. uh, and otherwise I get very fiddly with yeah, my yeah, hands, yeah, yeah. which is yeah. just not nice on video but and annoying for myself. It's cognitively so very is... different than you sitting with your phone. Also to me, right? Yes, it, yeah, yes. It takes no attention. I also yeah. do this while teaching, actually. If my students are working on a project, I also often are knitting. I'm missing because if I go on my laptop to like do email, I'm not accessible, right? right? They think they're disturbing me. If I do this, I can look around, but I'm not bored because I'm knitting. It, like, it's a perfect hobby. And then at the end of a boring meeting, if you are in a boring meeting, which sometimes happens, then you know, at least you have half a sleeve at the end. So yes. it's not time wasted. Yes. yes. So this was not time wasted for any of us. Uh, thank you for this amazing way out of this conversation because we're out of time. Um, Felina, thank you so much for coming. Thank Thanks you for, for coming to ITU yeah. in Copenhagen. Uh, good luck with your sleeve. And thanks. to everybody else, uh, thanks for attending. Bye.